Welcome back to the Policy Viz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. Now, I think all of us around the world have been checking our favorite newspaper or website or dashboard to get information on COVID-19 infections, deaths, and now, fortunately, changes in vaccination rates. And I tend to check two main websites, the New York Times and also the Washington Post. So I'm located right outside Washington, D.C. So the Post is sort of like my uh, local newspaper. So I generally check the Post every day to see what's going on in my county uh, here outside of Washington, D.C. But I also really enjoy, primarily because of the data visualizations, the dashboard over at the New York Times. And of course, in tracking these day-to-day infections and deaths and vaccines, the team over at the Times and and lots of other media organizations have had to make lots of different decisions about the visuals that they're going to create and how they're going to communicate this information on a day-to-day basis. So I'm really excited to have Charlie Smart on this week's episode of the podcast. Charlie works on the New York Times graphics department. He is one of the uh, team members working on their COVID-19 dashboard. Uh, He had a little bit of a Twitter thread some months ago about some of the changes they made to the color palette in the maps about the the COVID-19 infections rates. And so that really spurred me to reach out to Charlie to see if he'd like to chat about the decisions that they've made in and around the dashboard. So I'm excited to have this conversation with Charlie. I think you're going to learn a lot about the insides of how Charlie and other members of the New York Times think about communicating COVID-19 data, which of course is, is sort of different than uh, you know, showing information about the unemployment rate or GDP because COVID-19 information is potentially life-threatening. It's making life and death decisions about, am I going to wear a mask? Am I going to go outside? And am I going to you know, be around other people? So these are really important decisions that are driven by data. So I think you'll enjoy this week's episode of the podcast. And so here is my interview with Charlie. Hey, Charlie, how are you? Thanks for coming on the show. Doing well. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to talk with you about all this uh, great work you and your team at the Times have been doing, specifically on the coronavirus tracking dashboard and all the other work that you've been doing. So we've got a lot to talk about. So um, maybe we can start by having you just talk a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got over to the Times. And then I will ping you with a series of questions about <laughs> how you've been managing all this data and data viz. Sure. Um, so I went to college for journalism um, and uh, actually thought I wanted to do uh, radio journalism when I was in school. I was you know, very into podcasts and NPR and did college radio and um, did my first journalism internship at an NPR affiliate in Connecticut. And while I was there, they found out that I, uh, you know, knew a little bit of like HTML and knew how to code like a little bit, but not really well at all. But they found that out, and so they uh, asked if I could, you know, build some tables for a story, and then, um, you know, make some maps for a story. And I kind of, at that time, was sort of just learning that like data journalism was a thing. I had gone to a, a conference with um, some radio stations, some college radio folks earlier that year, and I'd seen actually someone from the Times Graphics Department speak there, and was like, "Whoa, this is you know really cool." Um, yeah. And so, kind of through doing this radio internship, kind of started doing the. Uh, the data and, and graphics journalism stuff. Um, and just thought that was really cool and kind of did um, that work through college. And then when I graduated, I worked for a little while at a design studio in Boston that sort of does uh, data visualization work, but in more of a, a design studio environment, not so much news. Um, and then, you know, did some freelance work and and worked um, for a little while with uh, the folks over at The Pudding, 
and was just kind of like, uh, you know, learning a lot of this, uh, stuff. Like, I think a lot of people kind of, there's no, um, I guess there are, are programs now that sort of focus on data visualization and this sort of journalism, but uh, mm. I think a lot of people are sort of you know self-taught and kind of figure it out as they go along, and that's very much what I was doing. And um, I started at the Times um, a little over a year ago now, in um, late 2019, and and I was hired to focus on elections to work on graphics for the primaries that were coming up at that time. Um, and that lasted until I think the Florida primary was the last one that I like directly worked on, which was March, I think 17th, um, okay. Okay. which was, so yeah, like, so that right, was like almost to the day of when everything shut down. Exactly. Yeah. I think we'd yeah. been, we'd been out of the office at that point for about a week and, yeah. um, yeah, you know, New York had kind of shut down like right around then. And that was when I switched over to working mostly on the, uh, coronavirus graphics and that just right. sort of was dominating um, the news sure. cycle and the things that we were covering at the time. And yeah, so I've kind of been working on a mix of coronavirus and elections things uh, since then. Right. Before we talk about the coronavirus stuff, do you miss the radio part of, of your early interests? You know, um, I do like, it's, uh, it's kind of fun to be on a podcast <laughs> now. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I do miss, uh, you know, I, I always love uh, audio and radio as a medium. And I think there's, you know, people doing really, really cool work in that area. Um, and I do definitely miss it. What I like about data journalism and visual journalism is that it sort of combines these like different interests I have in, in journalism and in design and, you know, uh, programming and kind of lets you do like a real mix of things. And it's not, you're not like siloed into one area and you can kind of yeah. move between these different things. Um, so I really enjoy that. But you know, I, I do miss, uh, you know, college radio and, and that sort of thing. Right. Have you, um, and maybe this is uh, premature, but have you uh, thought about or talked about combining audio into some of the visual data visualizations at the times? I know they, I know Amanda Cox had done some, some years ago had done some audio stuff, but it's not a very common form. I'm just curious. Yeah, you know, it's not something that um, I, I can't speak for everyone in the department. I don't know like what else is going on. It's not something that uh, I've been kind of focused on um, these right. like larger dashboard projects. But you yeah. know, it's definitely an interesting. Um, there's been some like interesting work I've seen sort of in that area. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay. So let's talk about the the Times coronavirus tracker because there's a lot there. You're updating it every day, and then you've made some larger changes at certain points and I'm sure some smaller changes over the course of the last, I mean, almost, you know, we're in early March right now. So almost a year to the day uh, since, since you've been doing it. So can you talk a little bit about the, the evolution of the dashboard and, and some of the, you know, both the smaller changes the maybe some of the tweaks that you had made. And then I know sort of in later in 2020 in November or so there were some bigger changes that had to be made. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just the first thing I want to say about this project before I kind of get into talking about it is yeah. that this is um, uh, has been just a, a huge team effort, this project. So a lot of the things that I'm going to be talking about are things that other folks have worked on. Um, I don't know what the biggest byline ever on a New York Times story is, but this one takes up like most of the vertical space of my, um, you know, browser window when you scroll <laughs> right, down to yeah. it. Yeah. So there's just so many people that are working on this. And I just want to make sure uh, sort of everyone on this team uh, sort of yeah. gets credit for that. Sorry, before you dive in, I assume that's not just the people on the graphics team. Does that does that include like other reporters and folks from the health department sort of weighing in and helping give you give your team the perspective that you need to make sure you're representing the data in the, in the right way? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's, so it's it's really a um, cross department, like, you know, multiple desks working on this. Um, you know, we sort of have people from all over the newsroom contributing to this project uh, in, you know, collecting data, in figuring out what the data means and reporting out stories based on the data. Um, so, yeah, it's a huge, it's like a, a massive sort of cross newsroom effort, sort of similar right. to like what might happen for like uh, an election project or something like that, where it's just, gotcha. it's such a big project that we have people from from all over working on it. Yeah. Um, so in, in terms of sort of the the history of this project, I, um, you know, we started tracking coronavirus cases in in the United States in uh, in, I believe, late January. And this started out as literally a, uh, a Google spreadsheet where people would go in and every time there was a new case would add a row to the spreadsheet. Um, and, you know, we're like reporting out this data very, very manually. And uh, that, you know, we sort of very quickly realized that that was just not tenable um, in the long term for for this project um, as the virus started to spread. Um, And so this is a part where, you know, we sort of worked with um, the team that does uh, sort of more like database development at the times, and they helped us build uh, a system to, you know, sort of more robustly in a, a real database sort of track these cases as they're coming in. And this was just data that didn't uh, really exist in this like sort of unified form anywhere. You know, we were tracking from every county. And, and part of this was that we needed to make it so that the data from different places in the country were comparable. Um, so, you know, because things were being reported at a state level, different states would report things in different ways. So, for example, some states might not include cases um, from people incarcerated in that state in their totals. And so, you know, we thought that those should go into the state totals. And so, you know, we did that work of adding, you know, those numbers that we reported out to the state numbers and, and keeping those things um, sort of consistent across states. And also just, you know, doing lots of reporting on the way that states were reporting cases, whether they were reporting, um, you know, only confirmed cases or suspected cases and same with deaths. Right. And um, so it was just like a huge reporting effort to collect these. And we started mapping these around that time, I think in, uh, like early March, we published the first um, U.S. coronavirus map, and it was it was a pretty simple map. It was just like uh, you know circles over counties to show how many cases there were there. And I remember in the first map, actually, we um, we highlighted states uh, when they had had you know a case to show like where in the country the virus had had been to, and that feature you know quickly became sort of obsolete as uh, yeah. you know all 50 states had the virus and and so it's just sort of been this continuous shifting of responding to the the changing uh, nature of the pandemic and mm-hmm. responding to that in in how we're graphing it um, right yeah so then uh, sort of later on in March we started building out you know more maps we um, you know made the maps like fully interactive uh, we added um, lots more charts you know we started with just sort of this basic like, case, uh, you know, bar chart of cases per day. And, you know, we started building out sort of uh, different views of that, you know, more details on showing like the seven day average of cases as, you know, this went on and you need to know sort of trends and not just like daily figures. Um, we added what we call like our uh, our sort of curve grid, uh, which is the section that's like where cases are going up and where cases are going down. And then we started thinking about like other other map views. Uh, it got to a point, sort of in um, you know like April May, where for a while the virus had really been um, the sort of the epicenter was New York City and and New York. And there got to be a point in like you know sort of the late spring of 2020 where 
um, you know, New York had sort of gotten its situation somewhat under control and the virus was spreading, you know, rapidly in other parts of the country. And at that point, we realized that the focus needed to not be on uh, so much on case totals, but on sort of what's happening right now in my area. Mm-hmm. So it's not uh, it's not just about like which place has had the most cases because, you know, in that map, you know, New York always had the biggest bubble um, because right. this had been so bad. But that didn't mean that things weren't bad in other places then. And so we started playing with uh, different ways of of showing that. So, um, you know, we we tried different versions of the map showing uh, we, we did a version of the map for a little while that color coded things by uh, whether cases were going up or down, like, uh, you know, daily case numbers, like sort of a change from the week before mm-hmm. um, and, and how steeply they were going up. And um, that was good for a little while, but uh, could be kind of confusing, we found. Um, and uh, we, you know, worked on organizing this curve grid by showing, you know, where cases are increasing and then also we we changed it to show not just where cases are increasing but sort of adding this other dimension of like where cases are high and increasing and where cases are you know still high but going down because those are sort of like just because something is going down doesn't mean things you know aren't bad there um so just trying to get as much information in as we could and what we ended up doing for the map was we settled on um sort of showing the number of cases per capita in the last seven days and doing sort of a choropleth map based on that. And we mm-hmm. thought that was a pretty good uh, way of showing sort of where, like, you know, how bad are things near me right now compared to elsewhere in the country? Right. And so that's sort of what the map has, has largely been um, since like, I think late May or early June was when we made that change. So when you were uh, going through these iterations, you had said uh, earlier that uh, you had found that this quite didn't work and maybe this did work. When you say that you found that, was that a, a, just a collaboration within the newsroom or were you asking people, asking New York Times readers to like help you all understand what they want, what works well for them? Or was it more this huge team of people in the Times newsroom saying, yeah, the pandemic sort of moving in this direction. We can see things spreading across the states in this way. And this is not really representing the data as, as clearly as we want. Yeah, you know, it was sort of a combination of those things. Um, it's, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about this internally and, you know, sketching lots of different possible ways of, of mapping and charting these things and, you know, doing um, just lots of sort of experimentation to try to find the best way of showing this and just discussing internally, like, with um, people both on graphics and you know uh, other reporters on other desks who are covering the story, kind of like what is, what's the best way that we can be showing this and what's most important to to get across to people right now, uh, but at the same time you know this is a page that lots of people um, look at and lots of people look at every day and so we right. do get lots of lots of reader feedback on these pages and are definitely responsive to that. Um, you know if we see people are interested in seeing certain things or are confused about the way we're we're showing things like we definitely take that into consideration right. throughout this whole process. Um, Can I ask, this is, this is a little bit of a, like maybe too inside baseball, but I'm curious. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the times is read by millions of people around the world. Uh, presumably you're getting thousands, hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of comments from people. How does that work? Is there a team that's going through those comments and are they feeding them to you? The ones that they seem relevant. And then like, if there's enough, presumably there's so many of them, are you actually like trying to quantify or visualize those comments like so that you can help improve the the tool? I mean, it's like it's data. It's its own kind of data, right? Yeah. I mean, I so I 
I'm a little limited in like what I can say about like specifics of, of sure, how sure. those sorts of systems work. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, you know, we're definitely like, it's definitely something that we're responsive to. Like we're sort of, we're seeing what readers are, are asking about these yeah. things. And it's definitely something we like, we think about and talk about during meetings when we're, you know, planning out how to do these things. Yeah, um, interesting. Another, another thing on the, on the mapping design front and sort of uh, the way things have, have changed um, that I wanted to talk about is that sort of early on in the pandemic, when the virus was, um, you know, largely hitting, you know, cities on, uh, you know, like New York and and sort of large cities, and especially on the East Coast, um, we made a decision on the maps to uh, add um, what's called a, a desymmetric uh, a filter, basically, so that we were we were only showing areas on the map um, above a certain population. And so we were, mm. we were showing counties, but we had this sort of filter layer on top based on um, census block groups. And right. we, were, we were not filling in areas that very few people lived in. And the idea behind that was basically that, you know, uh, counties in the West are geographically much larger uh, generally than, than counties in the East. And that there were um, in many of those counties, like sort of contained outbreaks in things like um, prisons or in like meatpacking uh, uh, facilities. And we realized that by, you know, if we filled in the whole county in that color, it gave the impression that the virus was like very widespread in this right. place when that wasn't really the case. And so we wanted to um, sort of have a visual filter to say like, you know, yes, the virus is here, but it's not like the entire state of Nevada is, right. uh, you know, is right. overrun by the coronavirus. And so we, yeah. we had this filter on the map. Um, and I think for a while, that was a really uh, useful sort of visual tool to indicate that. But then um, there was this point in, in November around the time when we made these other map changes um, mm -hmm. that were, you know, basically what had happened was that for a long time, um, you know, the virus, like I said, was was sort of concentrated in, in the East Coast cities and then sort of moved to the South. And there was a point in November where the, the Midwest started to get hit uh, really, really hard by the virus. Like, um, you know, Michigan, uh, for example, had been seeing, you know, through much of the summer, had been seeing like 700 cases a day. And, you know, in November, December, started seeing, you know, seven or 8,000 cases a day. Yeah. And same with like, you know, South Dakota had gone from like 100 to like, you know, 1500 cases a day. So just this huge increase in, in cases in a lot of these Midwestern states. And so that kind of caused two problems uh, for our uh, graphics. Um, the first was that the states had sort of maxed out the scale we were using on the map. So there was, you just couldn't see any variation anymore and everything was just right. solid red. And that's sort of, you know, on the one hand, like things were very bad there. And so having everything be red was not wrong, but it's also not especially useful if you live there to see like, you know, how is my county doing compared to other counties around it? And that's still information we wanted to get in there. Um, and it's always tough to, you know, make changes to these scales because this is something that people look at, you know, every day and people sort of become very used to these scales and sort of can kind of, um, I think, identify like, you know, they see the the red value and they know that things are bad and and we didn't want to just like shift the scale down so that everything that was red became like orange again, because mm -hmm. people might see that and be like, oh, you know, uh, things are better. Right. Um, so <laughs> which was not the case. Yeah. Um, so what we did instead was we uh, we added more values on top of the scale. We actually extended the color range into the sort of dark purple um, and extended the values and sort of did that not just linearly, but so that like the uh, the maximum values were like, you know, pretty high and 
that sort of allowed us to get a little more uh, range in the scale um, mm-hmm. and allow for some of that, you know, you can see the geographic variation in those places. Right. Um, and the other thing we did was we, at that point, we decided to remove that decimetric filter and just show all of every county. And the reason we did that was because the virus had had moved from, you know, largely urban areas to to rural areas. And so these areas were being hit really, really hard by the virus, um, but they were not showing up, you know, they were just showing up as a small little, like the one city in that county was showing up yeah. on the map. And when we realized that that was uh, sort of misleading in the opposite direction that we had initially intended this to to go. And, um, you know, this was a, a, another point where we sort of had some reader feedback from people who lived in, you know, the Dakotas and, and places like that where, you know, they were saying the virus is really bad in my area, but it's not showing up clearly on your map like can you know what can you do about that right right and um so that was when we decided to remove that that layer and we've kept the map like that since then yeah um so hypothetically speaking if you were working on a, on a project where you had a similar scaling issue where this the line or whatever the value sort of punched its way through the maximum of your scale um but it wasn't the sort of dashboard where you thought people were checking it every day right like it's a or it's not you know, which we can talk about a little bit, it's not life-threatening, right? You know, knowing mm-hmm. how many goals the CAP scored last night isn't life-threatening, right? Um, but knowing how many infections are in my county is, you know, potentially life-threatening. So would you, if it, if this wasn't that sort of dashboard, do you think you would have taken a different approach to that color challenge? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. Like, I think this is a really unique project in the way that people interact with it. Like, it's not, you know, a news story where it publishes once and, you know, people, you know, a lot of people read it on the day that it publishes or in the week that it publishes. And then, you know, it sort of has this like, uh, very quick drop off of readership. Yeah. Like this is, you know, very consistent, very, very consistent readership of people coming back to this, you know, every day, every week. And, and checking it. And, you know, like I said, like people, when you check something this often, you know, people sort of um, begin to associate these colors with like the specific situations. And so it's, you know, yeah. you, you, it's hard to, to make those changes and to require people to sort of adjust their own mental model of how they mm-hmm. understand these graphics. So yeah, if this was, you know, not a story that people were checking all the time, I think we probably would have just, you know, adjusted the brakes on the scale and that would have been that. It sort of requires you to like think a little differently of of how you're making changes. And another really important part is just signaling very clearly that we are making changes. Like even, you know, when we adjusted that scale, we included, you know, a big note in a box on the top of the thing that's like, we adjusted the scale and here's the reasons why we had to do that. And, you know, that was when I posted that, that tweet thread too, sort of explaining that. And that was part of just like trying to get this message across of like, what we changed and why we felt like we needed to change things at this point. Does that notice still sit there or there was like, was there a period of time where it's like, okay, so we, this has been existent for X number of days and that's, that's probably enough. Yeah, it was, it was there for a few weeks, I think. And then, and yeah. then we pulled it, but we, we okay. still do things like that for other changes. Like um, for example, uh, counties in Iowa, uh, the state of Iowa recently stopped reporting data at the County level um, mm-hmm. in the way that we need it for these maps. And uh, is only reporting that sort of data at the state level. Um, and so, you know, we started showing Iowa on the maps uh, as just a state where everything else is just counties. Yeah. You know, Iowa, you have over it, and it's just the state of Iowa. Um, and right. so that's another thing where, like, you know, we really want to be clear about the messaging about why we're doing that. And that it's not just like we forgot about Iowa counties. It's like we're responding right. to these ongoing changes in, you know, the data collection and in the the state of the pandemic. Yeah. And I seem to remember early on, that there was there was a day where there was like a big data dump, and so there are these big spikes in like multiple places. And I remember there being a big note that says, you know, 
February act, you know, 25th is not really representative because it was like a big data dump that day. Yeah, totally. That's like, um, that's a really, you know, those like, uh, we call them like anomalies in data reporting. Like this is a, the one thing about this is that this is a very, uh, messy data set. Um, like yeah. it's just, it's reported from so many different places and, you know, it's, it's inherently a, a hard thing to capture data for. Um, and, it's hard to to track this data, and you know we're we're really trying to our best to you know make this in the most as useful as it can be. Um, but it is just it's a tough data source to work with, and and a lot of the times you know states might uh, you know for example some states just don't report data on weekends, and so Mondays will have like a larger spike than other places, yeah. and that's why we use the seven day average in most places to sort of smooth that out. Um, and you know there are times when uh, states will have sort of a backlog of tests that you know were never logged or reported, and we'll report those all at once, and they're from you know some indeterminate dates in the last month, and it'll just show up as a spike. And so when we when we know that that's happening, we you know we have a team that does a lot of reporting around this data, not just you know collecting what states publish on their website, but also reporting on you know why is there a spike on this day, and when we're able to identify like the reason behind that. Um, we have a system where we can sort of flag that day as like an anomalous day and include a note with that and have it, you know, highlighted a different color on our charts and have a little arrow pointing to it saying, you know, this day is an anomaly and that we're not actually like four times as many cases on this day as the rest of the week. Um, right. And we, we think doing that sort of stuff is, is really important because people, you know, we don't want people to get the wrong message about the, you know, real state of the pandemic from this sort of um uh, these like sort of artificial spikes and, and dips in the data. Yeah, right. So can you talk a little bit about the uh, the overall user experience of the visuals? Because in some of the views, it's a little bit more about comparing my state to another state or my area to another area. And other views are, here's just your area, right? Here's just, you know, Virginia or New York state. So how do you all think about balancing those two types of users who some users probably want to make a comparison and some users just want to know like is it okay for me to go to the restaurant today yeah i it's like i think there's a range of of reasons that you know you you look at these dashboards i think um you know the main sort of us dashboard page with the big map at the top is really useful for just getting a picture of like how is the united states in general doing in the coronavirus you know we lead with like the sort of um the the curve, like the, you know, the, the waves of the virus, like that, that main chart at the top, that's become sort of a, a symbol of like, you know, how well are we doing compared to the spring compared to, you know, the peak in the, in the winter. And we leave with this map. Um, that's just sort of the big map of, you know, where is the virus, you know, worse in the country right now. Mm-hmm. And so those pages are useful for just getting sort of an overall picture of, of the virus in this country and sort of uh, and also, you know, we have the the world page too, where you can see sort of that on like the global scale of like, where is it worst in the world right now? And we do also publish these pages for um, like subnational geography for some other countries too, um, mm-hmm. uh, w- when we're able to get that data. So those are good for just sort of giving an overview of like, how is the virus affecting this place right now? Um, but we also know that people want information about, you know, where they're living. Like it's, you know, this is uh, not just data that's interesting in the abstract. It's like very useful specifically to people's lives and, you know, day-to-day decision-making. And so this is something we've been, you know, we've always had uh, these sort of a page for every state in the country. um, And that sort of was like the first level of like personalization that we had that you can 
go to your state and see, you know, how are coronavirus cases in New York right now? And we actually have a page for New York City specifically because we're able to get uh, zip code level geography for there. But, you know, more recently in the last, um, you know, five months or so, we've been focusing more on like very uh, detailed personalization. So um, in late November, we published a page that lets you search for counties that you're interested in and create sort of a personalized dashboard. Mm-hmm. Um, of counties, you know, interesting to you. Um, and so you might, you know, look up, you know, the place where you live and the place where your parents live and, you know, where your siblings live and, you know, just have like these sort of uh, locations that are that are relevant to you um, in there. And that just sort of gives you like the very basic information of like, you know, how bad are things right now? What direction are things trending? How are things compared to, you know, the peak of the virus? Just the sort of like sort of at a glance, you know, core information. And we also have that in, in a newsletter where you can get, you know, your personalized places, um, right. Just that, that very simple data sent to you. And that's like, I think very useful for people. And then we also in, I think December, um, the department of health human services, uh, started releasing very detailed hospital data, um, on, uh, like sort of at the specific hospital, single hospital level, of COVID data. So that includes things like, you know, what percent of ICU beds are available, um, how many COVID patients are there, what share of the patients there are COVID patients. And so we started publishing, uh, we, we initially published a map um, showing that at the uh, hospital service area level, which is just sort of a kind of small geographic unit that usually has between like, you know, one in 10 hospitals in it. Um, and just showing like, you know, kind of a choropleth map of how bad things are. And then we wanted to get even more detailed and show, you know, at the individual hospital level, like how bad are the specific hospitals in my area. And so we made a map that lets you search for, you know, your address and shows you the hospitals closest to you. And um, we kind of used a new uh, sort of visual tool in that where you can sort of pan around the map and there's sort of a a column on the left-hand side that updates uh, some sort of summary statistics of the hospitals you're looking at. Sort of like if you can imagine like panning around in Google Maps and seeing like the places that you're looking at update in that little sidebar, um, sort of uh, similar to that idea. And then the the most recent step we've taken in uh, sort of the personalized view of this is that earlier this year, we started publishing uh, a page for every county in the United States. So we're now publishing over 3,000 tracker pages um, multiple times every day. And mm. that was a, a sort of large effort to make that technically feasible, to you know make things fast and efficient enough to be able to you know update these and publish these. And those pages focus, um, you know, they give you sort of the overview data that the rest of the tracker pages do, but they also focus on specifically on risk. We worked with, um, you know, uh, health researchers at Johns Hopkins to sort of determine um, a way to calculate sort of risk levels based on uh, a number of factors, you know, cases, uh, testing, things like that. And then based on those risk levels, um, we give, you know, very specific advice on uh, you know, what activities are are safe and not safe and how people can protect themselves, you know, based on the current situation in their area. And so we're really trying to give people information that's not only, you know, interesting and gives a picture of, you know, how the virus is doing nationally, but also very, you know, useful and actionable. That it's instead of saying like, you know, there's been 50 cases in your county today, um, you might not know like what that means or it's like, what do I do with this information? But if instead we yeah. say, you know, your county is at an extremely high risk level and here are the things that, you know, you should and shouldn't do right now. Like that's uh, information that we think is very useful to readers. And that's kind of what we want to be uh, focusing on. Yeah. I mean, when I go to the tracker page 
and I don't know if this is because I'm I'm logged into my account um, as a subscriber or if it's or it's because I've done a search for my county in the past or it's the IP or whatever it is. But definitely when I get to that part, it says, you know, right now it's it's saying that, you know, my county is at a very high risk and it's like red and bold uh, in that little, you know, in that little teaser. And when you click over there, you get this, you know, this basically this big headline that's like in all red, you know, very high risk. Um, so it's definitely like, you know, pointing my attention to my area. Yeah, that's, I mean, even, you know, uh, I think you talked about like on the, on the homepage, like um, that's something that we've been, you know, there's a lot of design work has gone into that little homepage widget of showing like, you know, Mm -hmm. we have, you know, and it's not just, we don't just have like the case tracker pages. We also have lots of other tracker pages for, you know, vaccines and for colleges and nursing homes and metro areas. And we have like, right. Uh, many, many different trackers that we're publishing. And so we want to be able to, you know, use that homepage widget to highlight the things that are interesting or that are recently updated or that are specific to your location. You know, when we're able to get that location or have you search for it, like we want this to just be like uh, a very, you know, quick and useful little bit of information. Like those little like sparkline arrows on the homepage dashboard just to show like, you know, how are things now? How are they compared to last week? Like those are just sort of like very, uh, pieces of information that are, you know, everyday sort of useful and, and interesting for people. It, it's interesting in, in a lot of ways because it almost feels like the trackers are more of a public health resource than news reporting in sort of the traditional sense of, you know, here's the story of what's going on in this particular county. It feels like you have all taken this as your almost your responsibility as you know experts in this field of data communication and, and being able to wrangle the data and the technology to provide this resource that you know one might think that the CDC or the Department of Health and Human Services would have on their webpage, but it seems like you've all taken this responsibility of being this gatekeeper in some sense of of this coronavirus uh, information. Yeah. And, you know, like we, um, we definitely are like very aware that people, you know, use this as a resource and we want to make it as useful as possible. The other thing we do is that we, every day we, we publish this data on a GitHub page so that folks are able to use it for, for research or for, you know, their own analysis. Like we want this data to be out there and for people to use it and make use of it. Um, and we also like, you know, this is definitely a, a sort of resource both for the public and for us inside the newsroom like we you know report stories based on this data and based on these dashboards um you know every day like we have people uh you know working on you know just looking at these numbers and seeing interesting trends and you know using um both the sort of visualizations we've created um and also just the sort of raw data and you know we we have teams both on graphics and on other desks that are using this data all the time for uh, reporting and for like, uh, you know, doing the more sort of traditional journalism right. with this information. Right. And so it's it's great to be able to support both the sort of public need for this information and the ability of the Times to, to publish work based on this. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a couple more quick questions. Well, I don't know if this first question is that quick, but I have one quick question before the <laughs> end. But um, when you and the folks you work with started creating these trackers. Did you have a different feeling or a different approach to creating this tracker and creating the visualizations in the sense that, like you just mentioned, people are using this as a resource and it's potentially life-threatening information, right? I mean, this this virus is, you know, has killed more than a half a million people in the United States alone. Um, it's not like, you know, sports scores 
for the stock market, which is interesting and it's useful for lots of people, but not going to affect my personal health or the health of my family in a direct sense. So do you feel that way? Do you approach it that way? Or do you try to put that aside and say, this is, you know, it's another news story that we're working on? No, I mean, I definitely think like it's it's definitely hard to ignore the sort of implications of this data that we're working with. Like, I, yeah. you know, um, there have been times where, you know, when we're approaching one of these big milestones of of, um, you know, case numbers or death numbers that, you know, we're updating this and, you know, we want to, you know, be able to update it so that people are aware of these milestones. But it's also like, it's terrible to watch these numbers, you know, go up in real time as we're pulling in this data. Um, right. And it's definitely like, you know, you're, it's sort of hard to, to ignore the fact that these are, you know, real people with, you know, a terrible virus. And so I think um, we just have to kind of focus on, on communicating this information, like as clearly and in as useful a way as we can. It's a news story and, you know, it's, it's important information that we have to get across. One thing that we're doing in this project, actually, that I, that I think is interesting is that we offer these pages in both uh, English and Spanish. So we have uh, Spanish translations for these pages. Um, which I think is really important because this is, uh, you know, such crucial information and we want as many people as possible to be able to access it. And that was, mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of a challenge in building this in that, you know, nothing, none of the text on these pages are like hard coded in anywhere. Like we, we built a whole system to be able to swap out the, the translations for everything from, oh, you know, the main copy of the story to, um, you know, the individual chart labels are all translated to. Right. And so, um, you know, we thought that was really important as part of the sort of service that we're doing on a sort of technical level. An interesting thing that that sort of makes this different from a traditional news story is that, you know, there is there's copy on these pages like there's there's charts as well as sort of explanatory copy. Um, but a, a good chunk of that copy is uh, actually like generated like we have. Um, we have scripts that we run that generate sentences based on the data. And basically that mm -hmm. lets us like keep this copy for all these pages fresh and, um, you know, up to date with the latest information without having, you know, an editor have to go through and update the copy on 3000 right. pages every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so it lets us, uh, you know, sort of communicate this information, not just in charts, but, you know, give sort of a little more explanation, but in a way that's like, um, you know, sustainable long-term for us to, you know, keep these, these updated. Um, I think that's been a big, sort of constant challenge in this project is just keeping this, you know, in a way that as this project grows and as the the data grows and the number of pages we're publishing grows, just being able to keep on this cycle of updating, you know, four times a day and right. keeping the data as fresh as possible is, is something that we're, you know, constantly thinking about and thinking of ways we can improve. And, you know, we're making changes right now to, you know, slim down the sizes of, of files that we're sending to users so that we can, you know, that the page loads faster on your phone. Like we just want people to be able to, to get this data um, and this information sort of as easily as possible in a way that's as useful to them as possible. Yeah. I think there's a whole technology side of this tracker that I think is fascinating for, for lots of different people for lots of different reasons. I think, you know, a few years ago, having copy that would up where the numbers in the copy would update automatically was a very new thing. And people were very excited about how the graph and the data and the text actually interact with one another. And you all have sort of done that. You sort of taken that all the way to the, to, I don't want to say the end point because I don't know what the end point is, but you've taken that all the way where it's basically automating this, this whole thing. And it's, it's just a really interesting um, technology that I think, I would suspect that many data viz folks would be interested in in doing in their own work because it does allow you to more integrate those two things together. Yeah, I think actually in some way because um, 
because we at the times have done uh, sort of elections, live elections results pages for so long and have a lot of yeah. uh, sort of institutional experience working on, on those sorts of um, things. I think, you know, obviously it's a very different set of data and a different set of needs that you're communicating, but like those um, generated sentences were something that we had, had started using in the primaries uh, this year. Um, mm-hmm. And that just seemed like a natural thing to bring into, into these uh, coronavirus dashboards and a lot of like the sort of mapping techniques um, from like a technical perspective are things that, um, you know, we pulled in from these other sort of experiences in uh, making these sort of large dashboards that are the sort of thing that people check regularly and, you know, have new data coming into regularly. And so I think that was sort of a useful um, background to be able to do this, especially on such a, you know, tight time frame when we were, you know, first getting these uh, these pieces out. And it was like, there was a, you know, very high sense of urgency, um, especially, you know, a, a lot of us being located in New York, that things were so bad here that, you know, we really needed to to get these pages out. Yeah. Um, okay. I've got one last question for you. You might not be able to answer this question, but we'll see. You might, <laughs> you might say all of it. So when I go to the main times tracker page, um, there are more or less just to boil it down to like three main graphics. There's the, the map, uh, county level map. And as you noted, not for Iowa right now, but county level map. Um, <laughs> then there's a series of small multiple little line charts for cases going, you know, getting higher, uh, going lower for, for all the different states. And then the third sort of main visual is these little uh, stripe charts um, for each state and sort of like a, this really, what I think is a really cool table. So from those three sort of main sections, do you have a favorite part of the, of the from a data, data viz perspective, not from the, the impact of the virus, but from a data viz, <laughs> even technology perspective, do you have a favorite part of the page? So I, you know, on a sort of personal level, I, I mostly work on the maps. And so I, I think the maps have been very useful, especially at, at different points of the virus um, in showing, uh, you know, just in highlighting like where in the country uh, things are worse. And I think that's a very, you know, easily understandable visualization. I do think the, the small multiples, the sort of curve grid, we call it, um, is maybe one of the most useful things on the page in that it shows, you know, at the level of like each, um, state it shows both the curve um you know of cases in that place but also i think the the way that we group them is extremely useful and this was something that i talked about earlier where it's not just like the direction but it's grouped by both direction and sort of how bad things are and i think people um you know there's a time when there was just no, no states in the like where cases are low mm-hmm. maybe the us virgin islands uh, was in that but there was uh, hardly any places in the like, like cases are low area and that was something that I saw lots of people, you know, tweeting about and responding to that, you know, it was just bad everywhere at that point and right. you know, everything was going up and it was, um, it was really sort of striking just to see sort of how these, uh, these move around between those sections. Um, and so I, I look at that section a lot. I think the table is useful as like a, I know this is what you're saying. I'm just going to say all of them, but <laughs> I do think they're all useful for sort of, for different reasons. I think the table is yeah, good yeah, as like yeah. a no, quick right. overview. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, for different reasons for different people doing different different things, right? Which yeah, is, that's yeah. that's like really the the big part of this is that we know you know we have a very large audience that's looking at this and that everyone sort of has um, different needs and different interests. Uh, whether it's like you know you want to know you know is it safe to see friends outside uh, or not, or you right. know uh, just trying to figure out like your day to day decision making versus someone who's looking at this to get a sense of you know how. Um, how things are doing in the whole country versus, you know, epidemiologists who might just want the data. And so we publish the data, you know, separately from, from the, 
the whole visual presentation of it. I, I think we have spent a lot of time thinking about like how each piece functions and sort of what the different needs of different users are. Um, uh, the one other part that you didn't mention is the the very top chart. That's just the sort of curve and those yeah. top figures. Um, and I think like as a sort of, I, I feel like this curve has just become sort of like a, a symbol in a lot of people's minds of the virus and just sort of like these different waves of it. Um, and you can kind of like, I know at least for me, like I can remember like, you know, sort of memories of like, you know, what things were like at, at the top of that, you know, second wave or at the first wave in April. Um, and, you know, sort of uh, have a lot of like associations with this curve specifically. Um, right. So, you know, I think all the parts of it kind of function together to make uh, a, a tool that we think is, is pretty useful for for people. And we hope that people, uh, you know, are able to, to use to get information that that they need. Yeah, that's great. Um, Charlie, thanks so much for coming on the show. I mean, we covered a lot of ground and, um, it is a, it is a remarkable project and, um, congrats on working on that. And, uh, hopefully you'll get to maybe work on, you know, other things at some point. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Time. So, uh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was great talking to you. And thanks to everyone for tuning into this week's episode of the show. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you'll take a look at all the links and resources that I put in the episode notes of this week's episode of the podcast and go check out the New York Times COVID-19 dashboard so you can see all the things that we talked about in this discussion. So until next time, this has been the Policy Biz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. A number of people help bring you the Policy Biz Podcast. Music is provided by the NRIs. Audio editing is provided by Ken Skaggs, and each episode is transcribed by Jenny Transcription Services. If you would like to help support the podcast, please share it and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Policy Viz podcast is ad-free and supported by listeners. If you'd like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash policyviz.